The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. All right, so at this time, it is my pleasure to introduce Clark Rockfall from Alexandria, Virginia, who is the Director of Advocacy for the American Council of Blind, and he's going to give us an update on the happenings at ACB. Clark, what's happening? Well, Matt and everyone with the, the Kentucky Council of the Blind, thank you so much for that uh, rousing endorsement and introduction, Matt. I couldn't couldn't have said it better myself here on a brisk fall Saturday afternoon. So first, I want to thank you all for allowing me to join you and provide an advocacy update on the work of the American Council of the Blind. As, as Matt said, I do hail from Alexandria, Virginia, and work out of the ACB National Office as your Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs. If anyone needs to reach us to discuss or raise an advocacy issue, you can always email advocacy at acb.org or call the national office at 202-467-5081. And so, Matt and all, I'd like to begin by talking about some of our ACB legislative imperatives for... 2022. We have some exciting updates, including something that just happened here this week and the everyone tuning in and attending the KCB state convention are going to be some of the first to hear about it. Um, so first I'll start with our, with our uh, legislative imperatives related to digital inclusion and online accessibility. So in September, Senator Duckworth from Illinois and Representative Sarbanes from Maryland introduced the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act. And that is uh, bill number S4998 in the Senate and HR9021 in the House of Representatives. As I'm sure... Everyone in attendance here today knows uh, websites, software applications, online services are not always designed with accessibility in mind, whether that's for people who are blind, people who are deaf and hard of hearing, our members who are deafblind, as well as those with uh, speech impairments, physical cognitive disabilities, mobility, dexterity impairments as well. So ACB, in collaboration with the National Federation of the Blind, the American Foundation for the Blind, and National Disability Rights Network, uh, were working over the past two years to draft and negotiate bill text that was ultimately introduced as the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act. This bill does not amend the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. It is 
uh, say, complementary or supplementary to the protections that we already have from the ADA, uh, much like the ADA is an add-on and complementary to the Rehabilitation Act. And uh, you know, if you think in the voting context, there's the Voting Rights Act, then the ADA also has voting protections, the National Voter Registration Act has additional voting rights protections, and the Help America Vote Act, again, did, you know, it didn't amend any of those bills, but it added on additional protections for people with disabilities. That's what we're seeking to do here with the, um, the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act. So since, it, since the bill has been introduced, we've shared a, an action alert from the ACB National Office to our members and affiliates. We're also gaining support from the broader disability community. And it's not only blindness organizations, but blindness organizations, deaf and hard of hearing organizations, organizations representing people with speech impairments and uh, physical mobility, dexterity impairments are all on board and have a unified front in supporting this legislation. Um, and we will, you know, currently there are, I believe, 21 national level disability rights organizations supporting the legislation. But back in the spring, we sent a letter to Congress and to the administration with over 180 organizations, including the Kentucky Council and uh, the various many chapters within the Kentucky Council supporting that letter. And we'll be looking to do that here and grow not only national level support, but regional, state and local support for this bill as well. Uh, in addition to the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act, uh, two of our legislative imperatives are related to health and wellness. Uh, and I know that our the chair of the ACB Information Access Committee, Jeff Bishop, and I will be joining you all a little bit later today to talk more about uh health and wellness and technology and exercise uh, for, for everyone to live a more independent, healthier lifestyle. But it just quickly wanted to touch on the Exercise and Fitness for All Act, which would require accessibility to be built into uh, exercise and fitness equipment, as well as the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act which has been introduced in the House of Representatives, but not the Senate. And the Medical Device Non-Visual Accessibility Act would require the Food and Drug Administration to certify uh, medical, durable medical equipment and medical diagnostic equipment for accessibility, as well as safety and how effective and useful the equipment is. Um, I know it, it might seem like a no-brainer to to everyone in attendance here. Uh, I know I certainly ask the question every every time someone tells me that the FDA doesn't have to think about accessibility; they only need to think about safety and effectiveness. And it's like, okay, well, how safe is an insulin pump, or how effective is a continuous glucose monitor? 
if the user can't read the screen or can't control the input. So I, I'm sure you all agree with me that one goes hand in hand with the other, but uh, apparently uh, <laughs> it's a it's a difference of philosophy. So hopefully we can pass this legislation so that there are specific accessibility requirements. Uh, this bill is supported by ACB Diabetics in Action, as well as the national organization, because we, we want continuous glucose monitors and insulin pumps and heart monitors and blood pressure um, cuffs, uh, pulse oximeters, uh, CPAP machines, and there's a whole bunch of stuff. So I could keep just going down the list. But the vast majority of these items are inaccessible for people who are blind and people who are low vision. And in many cases, they are not accessible out of the box. Some require the use of a smartphone and a smartphone application to have limited accessibility. And that is not uh, acceptable or good enough for ACB and, and our members. So we want a more concerted and holistic approach so that people who are blind and people who are low vision can independently take back control of their health and manage their chronic health conditions. That also dovetails nicely with the previous bill, the Exercise and Fitness for All Act, because if it's possible to avoid a chronic or comorbid health condition, then we certainly want people who are blind and people who are low vision to have access to the equipment and tools and resources to, to prevent those uh, you know, chronic health conditions in the first place. So if we can work with equipment manufacturers or gyms or hotels that buy a lot of these equipment and have them out for public use in places of public accommodation. We want to take that approach as well. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but we have had some luck in this regard. Well, I wouldn't say luck, uh, success. We've had some success in this regard including some announcements here over the past summer that, again, Jeff Bishop and I will dive into a little bit more uh, later this afternoon. And then our fourth legislative imperative, many folks within ACB, and I'm sure the Kentucky Council, uh, are well aware of the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act, of 2010. This is the, the law that provided, um, you know, once it was passed and signed, provided for the creation and implementation of regulations for the accessibility of uh, two-way text communications, two-way audio communications, mobile web browsers, and then what everyone knows it for the best for audio description on broadcast and cable television. But a lot's happened over 12 years. Uh, a lot of innovation has taken place over the past 12 years. I think we are 
we are all noticing a shift in technology from broadcast and cable television to streaming where you, you know, you don't have a cable set top box. You may, you might not have an over the air broadcast antenna, but you have an internet connection and you're using that to access uh, online streaming platforms, many of which ACB has successfully negotiated with over the years, like a Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max, to bring audio description to their content and their platforms, as well as to make their websites and applications, user interfaces accessible for people who are blind and people who are low vision. Uh, but that's a that's a very time intensive and limited approach to address the the symptoms of the larger problem, right? The the symptoms are the that this individual video provider in their website and their app is not providing accessible video content. Uh, people can't access it, and when they can't access it, it doesn't. It's not accessible to them because it does not have audio description. So what we are looking to do, and what we have accomplished at this point, much like with the CVAA, ACB has worked with our partners in the deaf and hard of hearing community uh, to draft new legislation to modernize and update the Communications and Video Accessibility Act. And I'm very excited to announce that just on Thursday, November 17th, Senator Markey in the Senate and Representative Eshoo in the House have introduced the Communications Video Technology Accessibility Act, or the CVTA. Um, I don't know about you, I think CVTA has a nice ring to it. So this is legislation that will require all video programming to have audio description. Right now, it's only about an hour a day from the four main broadcasters and the top five cable networks. This bill is calling for all video content to have audio description. Right now, only the top 80 or 90 designated market areas, basically uh, cities with broadcast channels around the nation, are required to make available audio description. This bill would say every broadcaster around the United States must pass through and make available audio description. This bill would also extend the audio description requirements as well as the requirements for having accessible user interfaces to all online video providers. So ACB would not have to go case by case with provider by provider because everyone would be covered as they're sharing and distributing video content online. There are several other provisions of this bill, including, I mentioned before, the CVAA created regulations for the 
um, accessible communications via text and accessible audio communications. This bill would require that the Federal Communications Commission uh, put in place the same sort of requirements on video conferencing services. And I you know, call it a silver lining of the pandemic, but many folks have switched to using video conferencing services more so than they did before the pandemic. And these services are not always accessible. We've, we here in the, the blind and low vision community have uh, really good luck with Zoom. Uh, however, when, when Zoom and other services were launched, people who are deaf and hard of hearing couldn't have captioning or couldn't highlight an ASL interpreter. And if we switch over to uh, any other conferencing platform, the, the level of accessibility may not be as good or might be non-existent for us. So it's really important to have clear rules of the road so that any conferencing platform is accessible to people with disabilities, whether it's being used in the classroom, in the workplace, or on a Saturday afternoon from the Bluegrass State to also the CVTA would... uh, make more funding available and expand access to the National Deaf-Blind Equipment Distribution Program so that people who are deaf-blind, whether ACB members or otherwise, have access and can afford the communications uh, equipment that they need. Um, you know, often, it, you know, certainly as somebody who's, who is... Uh, on the cusp of low vision and blind, I have felt the sting of the pandemic being more, more distant, more isolated. And I can only imagine how that is magnified for our members, uh, whether they're part of our sight and sound impaired committee or deafblind members of the broader community have felt over the past two years. So it's important to ensure that everyone has access through the I can connect program uh, to be able to, to maintain contacts and independence and remain as active members of their community. Uh, A couple other items that are pretty significant for ACB in our advocacy work this year. Uh, We are working directly with the uh, Department of Health and Human Services and National Institutes of Health on accessible COVID testing uh, and A, making all forms of testing, at-home testing, more accessible, but B, ensuring that folks uh, have these tests available and that these tests are accessible to them. So we were very excited that the National Institutes on Health uh, shipped accessible COVID tests to the ACB convention in Omaha. You know, the the kicker here is that you need to have and use a smartphone for these more accessible tests to be accessible to you. Uh, But once you connect them to your smartphone via Bluetooth, they do provide accessible instructions as well as accessible results from the at-home COVID tests. That is kind of phase one in in making tests more accessible, right? Um, But phase two is that 
we know COVID tests are not the only at-home tests people who are blind need access to. Um, certainly any, any member, any women within ACB know that pregnancy tests have been accessible, inaccessible for decades. And that is a portion of our work with NIH as well. Um, as we move forward and look, you know, and, uh, unfortunately a few years down the road, but looking to the development of more accessible di- at-home and diagnostic tests across the board in all aspects of uh, personal and private health and wellness. Uh, so that that is work that's currently being done and that remains to be done in the future. Uh, also, over the past couple of years, we have been very active on voting rights and voting access. As I know, folks in Kentucky have been as well. And I'll say that uh, this year, in terms of accessibility, it was pretty, pretty quiet at the national office. You know, I think many of our affiliates made gains over the past two years of accessible ways to vote, both in person and remotely, uh, with remote accessible voting where you can electronically receive, mark, and cast your ballot without, in, in some cases, without having to print it or apply a, a wet written signature you know, with, with pen and ink on paper and then mail it back. Uh, but my sense is that a lot of folks probably return to voting in person with the accessible ballot marking devices here for the general elections in 2022. Uh, but voting will, will always remain a top priority for the organization Certainly when we have a presidential election now less than two years away, we want to ensure that voting is remains accessible and becomes more accessible for ACB and our members. And I'll ask if our if our Matt or our host would like to recognize hands for Q and A. Hello. Uh, thank you for taking my question. Um, my question is, are, are we moving any closer to adding low vision to the state's optometry acts? Because no state has a low vision clause. There's no definition of low vision. And therefore, our low vision doctors cannot prescribe for insurance to pay for part of our devices that we can use to continue using the vision we have left. So I was wondering if we are any closer to changing that. Tanya, thank you so much for that question. So for uh, many years, certainly since uh, medic, uh, the Center for Medicaid and Medicaid Services made it clear in 2008 that uh, they were viewing the eyeglass exemption of the Medicaid Act of excluding everything with a lens. ACB has been supportive of providing low vision coverage and low vision device coverage through Medicare and Medicaid. Um, We were very happy that 
Representative Bill Arrakis, uh, re and Representative, uh, excuse me, Representative Bill Arrakis and Representative Maloney reintroduced the Medicare Device Coverage Demonstration Act here, excuse me, the, uh, the low vision devices uh, cover. Medicare Coverage Act here this year in 2022, but we're also working with a broader coalition to see if if that really is the best approach. You know, do we really need a demons a five year demonstration to to a tell us what we already know, which is that folks need access to low vision devices and coverage, or is there a a different path forward? You know, we were optimistic in 2021 that we would be able to get Medicare vision coverage, including low vision coverage in the the much uh, larger Build Back Better Act when that act was projected to be around $2 trillion and everything, including the kitchen sink, was included. So at that point, we said, let's not push for a demonstration bill. Let's let's push for the whole kit and caboodle. Um, same, and, and much like every other uh, organization and advocacy group was doing, you know, pushing for full Medicare, vision, dental, and hearing coverage, including low vision devices, hearing aids, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, that that bill kind of collapsed under its own weight. So at the end of this year, we'll start the 118th Congress. Bills will need to be introduced again. And ACB will be having a conversation with our, uh, with our affiliates, with our partners on whether a demonstration bill is the right approach that we should be supporting and that we have supported since 2013. Or if, Time has moved beyond that, and we should be pushing Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and pushing Congress for full vision coverage, along with low vision device coverage. Um, so thank you for raising that issue. Uh, Clark, would you have a question in the room? Byron Sykes. Thank you. I'm wondering if we have bill numbers for the CVTA and also have a comment on the uh, Websites and Software Application Accessibility Act. Yeah, so the, the question was, uh, I heard the, the first part, do we have a bill number for the CVTA? And then there was a, a comment about the Websites and Software Applications Accessibility Act. That's right. Okay, so the, uh, the first part of your question is very short. No. We do not have a bill number yet at this time. It was just introduced on Thursday, and that sometimes that can take a couple days. I imagine we will have a bill number, uh, you know, by Monday or next week. And then from the national office, you'll see a a call to action coming the week of Monday, November twenty eighth. We do have, and I, I'd be remiss if I did not plug the audio description awards gala. On the evening of Tuesday, November 29th, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. So likely on Wednesday the 30th, we will put out a a call to action for folks to support the CVTA with bill numbers. Okay, thank you. And the uh, comment is that 
unless I'm missing something, which I could, I would like to see in the websites and software accessibility act, application accessibility act, um, serious uh, punishment, particularly for the federal government, for its con constant, continuing, ongoing failure to make things accessible to wit the Department of Commerce Census Bureau has 55, count them, 55 surveys that they do at various times. In Jeffersonville, for a good while, we've had blind people working there. At one point, I think we had something like 15. I think it's down to four or five now. And they will only agree to let us have three surveys to work with. And I don't think they're even meeting that. So as as one who's been victimized by this thing, I really wish there could be some teeth put in this thing to cause it to be seriously followed and enforced. Thank you. Just with a, a specific response there. So the the soft the websites and software applications accessibility act will apply to um, employers and places of public accommodation, um, and it does have teeth. It does have a private right of action. Um, and if a, a covered entity is contracting to a vendor or a commercial provider, it does allow for legal recourse by the individual who is harmed, as well as the business or the employer or the place of public accommodation who is contracting with that vendor uh, to be able to seek legal recourse from that vendor for providing an inaccessible website application, in this case, survey, um, due to inaccessibility. Uh, specific to the federal government, uh, that is a, uh, you're raising a great issue uh, related to Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act, where the federal government, as well as uh, you know, vendors and contractors for the federal government are required to make their goods and services accessible, but there's no real teeth in enforcement there. So they get a, you know, they get a slap on the wrist and told, get told they have to fix it, but that's about it. Right. And I think that that's something that, uh, some folks are seriously looking at on how to provide more rigorous oversight and enforcement for that section 508 compliance. So thank you for raising that. And Clark, one more time, if folks need to contact the national office about advocacy issues, uh, where may they do so? Well, and again, Matt, thank you so much to you and the Kentucky council for giving me the opportunity to uh, present here today. Uh, hopefully next year I can join you all there in person. If, if folks would like to learn what the national office is up to, you can always visit our website at acb.org. And additionally, we, we put out an advocacy update podcast, uh, typically on Thursdays every week or every other week. And you can access that uh, via ACB media or via your favorite podcast player. If you want to reach out to, Either me, Clark Rockfall, the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, or my colleague, Swatha Nanda Kumar, ACB's Advocacy and Outreach Specialist. You can email us at advocacy at acb.org or give us a call at 202-467-5000. Uh, 
8-1. I hope everyone tunes in to the Audio Description Awards Gala on Tuesday, November 29th. And please join us in person for the DC Leadership Conference the weekend of March 11th and 12th. Uh, in 2023. So Matt and everyone else, again, thank you and keep advocating. Thank you, Clark. And uh, yes, we'll be hearing from Clark a little later. All right. Well, we shall turn the microphone over uh, to Adam Rushable uh, just for some context. Last year uh, at convention, Kentucky Council of the Blind uh, voted to support the I'm going to butcher the name, Kentucky Historical Society. And so Adam is going to be giving us an update on that initiative and kind of talking about that to us. So, Adam, I'm coming your way. Thank you, Mike. We appreciate it. And Gary Mudd was supposed to talk today, but a couple of days ago he called me and said that he had a, a real family emergency that came up that would not let him come today and asked me if I would speak uh, for him. And I said that I would be happy to because uh, history is my background and I like history very much. And so uh, even though uh, I regret the circumstances that require it, uh, I'm Pleased to be here today to talk about the Kentucky Historical Society of the Blind. Now, um, there is a question about um, the difference between prehistorical societies and historical societies. And does anybody know what the difference is? Anybody like to say what? For instance, you know, dinosaurs were in prehistorical times. Uh, Matt is, you know, certainly a historical uh, person, although nothing like a dinosaur. But anybody like to say what the difference might be, though? Okay, I'll go ahead and tell, and that is uh, writing. And in prehistoric civilizations, you had a lot of history, but it wasn't uh, kept. It was all memory, and a lot of it was lost because over the time, people would forget things. But when writing came along, uh, say back in Babylonia, where they used clay tablets, you have uh, history records that can still be kept and translated and read. But even as recently, say, as... 300 years ago in uh, Native American uh, uh, history, uh, they again had a lot of oral history or memory, but not written history, and so a lot of that has been lost. Um, as I said, my background is in history. I, I started out majoring in math when I got to college and took several classes and got up into a thing called number theory. And in the class of number theory, they spent the first three weeks of the semester trying to prove that three was really a number. And I said, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm going back to history. 
My problem is, is that I'm not very good at remembering names and I'm not good at remembering dates, but I like history. And so uh, here in Kentucky, I think when I was going to the Kentucky School for the Blind, uh, I already was doing things that might have placed me where I should have been because I still have things from back when I was in school, uh, way back in that previous century uh, that uh, I like to keep. I've always liked to record things and always been interested in the history of the Kentucky School for the Blind. We have a history that was written by a lady named Gretchen Wright back in 1942. Uh, that was her master's thesis that covered the history of the Kentucky School for the Blind from its beginnings in 1842 up till 1930 and a little bit past that. But we don't have anything, uh, a solid history since then. And I, I think something like that was needed. Well, we started working on it in 1984. Uh, Will Evans, a former superintendent at the school, uh, we had a meeting with our School for the Blind Advisory Board, and we had a big meeting to name the buildings at the campus. And that, again, was based on history. Uh, we tried to name buildings after some of our more important uh, previous staff members or whatever. Uh, then our alumni was given a small room uh, to store history items in. It had a desk, a filing cabinet, and a section of shelving. And boy, we thought we were moving up a little bit. And then we were going to move into uh, the recording for the blind building on Holloman Avenue on the campus that uh, had been left when RFB uh, no longer needed it. And we thought that was going to be great, except a tree fell on it. Uh, caused an electrical fire, the building burned down, and so we weren't able to use it for storing things. Then they allowed us to use uh, a building or a house on the campus that had been used originally for the superintendent of the school, and we termed that as the history house. And we stored a lot of things uh, up there that were historic to the school. And uh, the things really weren't safe up there. Uh, beginning to disappear, and we uh, worked out an arrangement with the American Printing House for the Blind where they uh, took over things uh, which were donated technically to APH and are now part of their museum property, but will be available uh, for future research and reference, and, and that worked out very well. But our alumni uh, talked about this for years, and about 10 years ago, we got the alumni to approve $10,000 to be used for the purpose of setting up some type of history project, and that's what we called it over times, and every year we'd renew that uh, pledge to give us the money. And finally, uh, after... Uh, eight or nine years, uh, we decided, well, you know, the School for the Blind was on a campus, which is just across the street, caddy corner from where we are now, 25-acre block, and there were the Kentucky School for the Blind, 
the American Printing House for the Blind, the what was the Kentucky Industries for the Blind, now LC Industries and National Industries for the Blind workshop, and the Recording for the Blind building uh, that was used for almost uh, 30 years or uh, so by RFB. All four of those entities on one block. And we said, well, you know, maybe there's more than just the history of the School for the Blind. And we thought, well, we'll get a little bit more ambitious and develop a history of the blind in the state of Kentucky. And so Carla uh, began working on uh, trying to set up the organization, and she went to work, got it our organization incorporated here in Kentucky, got the 501c3 uh, approved from the IRS. And then we uh, set up a board and uh, have since had about a year's worth of meetings uh, of the Kentucky Historical Society of the Blind. Now, Gary Mudd, and the reason why we invited him to be here today was is the interim president of that board and a fellow named Kenny Jones, uh, who is a former teacher at the school and um, a retired vision teacher uh, and was recently elected as president of the KSB alumni this last summer, is the vice president. Uh, I am the secretary and uh, can you all imagine who the treasurer is? <laughs> uh, Carl was elected as treasurer, and we have several people uh, who, over the years, had really put in time with history or collecting things, and that's uh, people like Ricky Ricks and Alan Steinberg. Ricky Ricks was in the dorm program at the school. Alan Steinberg was uh, chair, executive director of the Kentucky School for the Blind Charitable Foundation, and so on. We also uh, have Barbara Pinagore, our Kentucky Talking Book Librarian, and uh, she is on that board, and Paula Penrod, who uh, worked a few years at the American Printing House for the Blind, then came over to KSB, has worked there for over 20 for 25 years now and is extremely interested in the history of the school and of the blind and, and has kept all kinds of records and materials and uh, she's on that board, etc. So uh, we have, uh, of course, gotten the $10,000 from the KSB Alumni Association and have set up an account uh, with PNC Bank and are in the process also of having received uh, donations from the Louisville Downtown Lions Club as a major donor so far and other uh, smaller donations from other places. And we, of course, now hope to eventually find a place to store our materials that we have uh, left. Uh, Mike Hudson at the Printing House is also on the board, and he was the one that made it possible for us to transfer a lot of our materials to the APH Museum, and Michael uh, made arrangements to uh, have a, uh, an intern uh, work and, and inventory 
Plaza materials, and the Kentucky School for the Blind Charitable Foundation helped to fund that person, and so we were able to do that and get it transferred. So since then, too, we have uh, had Mike Hudson at the printing house to arrange to digitalize our old Kentucky School for the Blind student magazine, the Kentucky Colonels, which was published from 1946 to 1995. And in those magazines, they are totally just about student written. They are articles that dealt with all kinds of activities at the school over the years. And so there's lots of history in those things. And so that has been completed. And we are also currently trying to prepare a list of organizations that have dealt with the blind over the years. And, and so far, I think I have a list of about 90 organizations. And then uh, we also are developing a list of important individuals. Now, you know, an important individual, uh, we have Paul Edwards here today, for instance, and he's an important individual. And a lot of that is due to the fact that he wears a lot of hats, but it never goes to his head, you know. So, but uh, we are developing that list, and I would like to invite you all to think of organizations or individuals who might have been important to the history of blindness in the state. And uh, the, this Kentucky Historical Society of the Blind is young, but we are going to work, and we will be inviting everyone to try to help us out uh, in long range to come up with some type of a well-developed uh, written documentation uh, about the history. So thank you very much.